Serb Halpern, the two on the brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly appearance, his regular Monday appearance, is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. In what follows, as he does during every one of his appearances, or most of his appearances, what Dave Cameron does is to go ahead and analyze all baseball. As Cameron noted, uh, notes or noted in a piece for Monday at the main site, the completion of the amateur draft more or less denotes the beginning uh, until until the end of July, uh, the beginning of trade and trade rumor season. In what follows, we discuss uh, one target, one trade target uh, that may not be on the tip of the industry's tongue, so to speak, and yet might be a good investment uh, for any team in playoff contention. That's just a. Uh, that's not all of what we talk about, though, because. To explain all of what we talk about would take uh, literally be a one-to-one ratio with the conversation you're about to hear. Um, so let's get to that conversation. It is Fangraphs Audio. It does feature managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Amused? Yeah, you sounded amused for a moment. Hmm. Maybe you're just discerning my general personality. Huh. Is that your reputation? The one who's constantly amused? That, that is uh, my reputation with people who have never met me. Yeah. Or don't know you. Yeah. I was thinking of doing a Knockraft post that was a, it would be a Dave Cameron power rankings. Okay. Um. Uh, so it would be just looking at the various Dave Camerons and ranking them in, I guess, in order of power. <laughs> right. Well, we know who's coming out on top. Who are you thinking? The Prime Minister. Yeah, Prime Minister. Uh, there's a Prime Minister named Dave Cameron. Uh, yeah. There is... Uh, but who are, the other, who are the other big Dave Camerons? Well, I don't know if there's a big one, but there's a guy named Dave Cameron from Ithaca, New York, who has the at Dave Cameron Twitter handle. And... Uh, occasionally, or with some regularity, people tweet at him thinking it's me, and he then sends them my way. So him and I have interacted some. Seems like a pretty interesting guy. He also has, I think, like, at Dave Cameron on Instagram or whatever the handle is there. And he seems like he's, like, into food, and he's a history professor. He seems like a pretty, pretty all right dude. How many, uh, how many Dave Camerons do you think there are? There are? Or do, you, do, you have a, do you have a sense of a number? I mean, thousands, right? It's a pretty popular combination of names. Would you ever be interested in having a Dave Cameron, I don't know if it would be a reunion, I guess just a plain union? Union? Like a convention? Like yeah, Comic right. Con, but only with Dave Cameron? Yeah, right. I mean, there are other conventions that don't, yes. But, yeah, right, right, like a convention. Yes, uh, that would be weird, but I would go. You'd go? Yeah. Do you think that uh, the Prime Minister would go? Probably not. Hmm, okay. And then how, how would that work if only Dave Cameron were allowed inside? Like, do we have to hire people in Dave Cameron to be in security today? Yeah, I don't know. I uh, I will say this. I believe that I'm also related to a Dave Cameron. Um, he was, I believe, a vicar uh, in the Oxford area of England. Well, uh, I, I might be exposing my ignorance here. What's a vicar? A vicar is a member of a church. I don't know. It's uh, It would be a church of England, you know, so. Okay. Right. Um, right. So he was a some member of the Church of England. I don't know if that's. Uh, I like that. That's how like that's the defining characteristic of this person. He went to church. That's all you know about him. No, no, no. He's like a not, no, not just like a like uh, like a priest essentially. 
Okay. Well, yeah. there's, there's a member and a priest, right? What's that? Isn't there a pretty significant difference between a member and a priest? Yeah, right. I meant like a... Yeah, you're right. He's a member of the clergy. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. Member of the clergy. There you are. All right. Let's stop this. The uh, um, You've written today about baseball, Dave Cameron. You've yeah, actually so let's talk, let's talk about baseball calendar for a moment. We are after the draft, and yep. we are before the trade deadline on July thirty first. Yep. And so this is the period of the season. This season, I mean, you know, there's overlapping periods, but this is a period of the season in which um, we know enough about teams to uh, to be able to say which ones are likely going to or are. are likely in playoff contention or likely not in playoff contention, and then there are a number of teams in the middle probably that are still trying to figure this out. But this means that uh, teams will be teams that are in playoff contention will be looking to acquire players from teams that are not. Yeah. Right. And uh, a sort of player that most frequently is a relief pitcher. Yeah. And uh, you've written about that today. You say don't target uh, Jonathan Palabon. Because there's uh, there are at least there's at least one other pitcher who's as good as him or nearly as good as him and will cost a fraction of the amount. That's Jesse Crane in this case. Right, probably one of the more underrated relief pitchers in baseball. Uh, underrated by even myself. I think I didn't realize how good Jesse Crane was. Probably because uh, when he came up with the Twins, he was just you know he was a twin and he pitched for the Twins and he pitched like every pitcher pitches for the Twins. He threw fastballs and he got some ground balls and he didn't strike anyone out. And that's kind of what I remembered of Jesse Crane. And then I remember kind of making fun of the White Sox for giving a pitch-to-contact ground ball guy a three-year, $14 million contract as a free agent a few years ago. And, uh, you know, I think I had, like, somewhere in my mind recognized that maybe Jesse Crane had turned into an okay relief pitcher. But I didn't know he was striking out, like, 31% of the batters he faced and had turned into a, you know, legitimate late-inning relief day if you can get both right-handed and left-handed hitters out. Well, the weird thing about Jesse Crane's development, and you've included in your piece today a chart of um, of his strikeouts per nine over the course of his yep. career. It, Jesse Crane has done a thing which pitchers don't usually do, which is to get gradually better throughout the course of his career. Right. And he it, kind of like pulled up Jason Grilly a little bit. Okay, right. And is that the case with Grilly as well? Uh, yeah, I mean Grilly's. Uh, ascent hasn't been quite as like gradual. He kind of went from like, hey, I'm in the micro league to, hey, I'm awesome. Right. Uh, but it's kind of the same thing. Where really was mediocre for a pretty long period of time, and then you know, kind of at the end of his career, he's now amazing. And what has really done to get better? Uh, you know, miss a lot of bats. Okay. Basically. Yeah. But is he using roughly the same repertoire as he gained velocity? Uh, I think he's throwing harder than he used to. Uh, don't quote me on this because I didn't write about Jason Grilly today. So. Right. Let's let's quote you about Jesse Crane. What has he done to get back? Right. Uh, so I think there's a few interesting things. I think when you look at Crane and his evolution, when he was in Minnesota, it was 70% fastballs, even 75% early in his career, uh, you know, just pounding the zone with fastballs. So he was a low walk, you know, moderate ground ball guy who didn't miss any bats. Uh, 2010, he decided to kind of reduce his fastball rate and go heavily with a slider, throwing a slider almost half the time. Uh, and that started getting him some strikeouts. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, his walk rate increased because if you throw 50% sliders, you're probably missing the zone a lot. Uh, he gets to Chicago, Don Cooper does Don Cooper things, and now all of a sudden, Jesse Crane has a curveball, uh, out of nowhere. I mean, you know, he's thrown a curveball in the past. It's not a entirely new pitch for him, but 
what he's really learned how to do this year is throw the curveball early in the count, especially to left-handers. And so I think one of the things that uh, is maybe understated in, in how a pitcher can really change, uh, you know, it's not just velocity or movement or, you know, changing arm angles. Um, I think kind of the selection of pitch by count is something that pitchers can do that is maybe more subtle change that can make a pretty significant difference. And so I think what we're seeing with Crane here is, uh, his willingness to use first pitch curveballs, especially to left-handers, is basically getting free strikes. Uh, we know the curveball's a, a pretty high called strike rate pitch. Batters don't swing at it nearly as often as they do other pitches. And if you can throw it in the strike zone, it's basically a free strike, especially if they're up there looking for a first pitch fastball. So, Crane's throwing more first pitch curveballs, getting ahead in the count, and then using his fastball, uh, out of the zone, which is kind of where the comparison to Papelbon comes from, um, and kind of using his two-strike fastball, out of the zone as a, as a pitch that hitters will chase and getting strikeouts that way rather than starting with fastballs and trying to get hitters to chase breaking balls late. Now, this seems like it might be a good strategy for a pitcher to take, especially if he does have velocity like you mentioned um, and is able to locate his fastball decently but does not necessarily have great secondary stuff. Yeah, I think this is probably an area of interesting exploration in the future just from watching, and this isn't something I can prove with data yet, but just watching a decent amount of baseball, it seems to me that part of the rise in strikeouts the last couple of years uh, has been pitchers switching to two themes or to four theme fastballs and two strike counts, and going up the ladder. And a lot of pitchers, I mean, Justin Verlander's, you know, famous for this. There are a lot of really good hard throwing pitchers who throw high fastballs and get strikeouts. But even, you know, I mean, Jesse Crane's not Justin Verlander. He doesn't throw as hard as Justin Verlander. Uh, I think pitchers like Crane, who are learning kind of to do what Papelbon's been doing his whole career, which is get ahead of hitters and then elevate with a two-strike fastball, this is a pitch that hitters chase a lot and they make very low contact on. And I think, you know, with the strike zone potentially getting larger at the top end, I think we knew 15, 20 years ago, umpires weren't calling the high strike. If they're more willing to call the high strike now and hitters are more willing to chase pitches up out of the zone, uh, that's a pretty good pitch and maybe a better pitch than even a, you know, a slider or a curveball that you're trying to bury in the dirt because the catcher's more likely to catch it. So you're less likely to, you know, get a wild pitch with a man on base. Uh, the high fastball, I think, is a, you know, a well-located high fastball is a really good pitch. And I think what we're seeing with Crane is, you know, he's getting a lot of strikeouts from getting hitters to chase fastballs out of the zone, even though uh, he's not using a fastball as often. So it's fewer fastballs overall, but a more effective fastball because of how he's using it. Do we have a sense of the like, contact rate uh, by by height in the zone? I, I know that, that I'm just putting you on the spot a little bit here, but is, do we have anything yeah. like that? Yeah, I think Dave Allen wrote about this a few years ago, and basically the understanding is the contact rate uh, decreases the higher up you go. Um, so if you pitch at the bottom of the strike zone, contact rate is very high. At the top of the strike zone, contact rate is much, much lower. The offsetting reason, you know, if, since that's true, you would just think, well, why don't pitchers just pitch at the top of the strike zone? The home run rate on pitches at the top of the strike zone is much higher than at the bottom of the zone. So you're essentially, at the bottom of the zone, you're trading uh, more contact for fewer home runs, and at the top of the strike zone, you're trading more, you know, fewer contact for more home runs. Uh, which is why you see pitchers like, you know, Kevin Slowey and some of, you know, even Asashi Iwakuma and some of these guys with mediocre fastballs who pitch up in the zone or fly ball guys to a ton of home runs, uh, but they also put a decent amount of strikeouts and they can be good pitchers despite their home run problems because of all the whiffs. And so that's basically the trade-off the pitchers are making. If you're going to pitch up in the zone, you get more strikeouts, but you also do it more dingers. 
And I guess I, do, do you sense that there's a way for pitchers like Crane in this situation to sort of to manipulate the odds a little bit? Because we could say, okay, you throw a high fastball, um, it has a high higher whiff rate, also has a higher home run rate. Is there a way? Yep. Is there a way to sort of manipulate the batter's perception, manipulate the the at bat such that such that when you throw that fastball, uh, it's it's somehow more like you, you can somehow suppress the home run. And you can increase the, the likelihood of a whiff. I mean, you know, based on count, like you're mentioning. Yeah, I think that's really the key is kind of the count that you're throwing it in. So I think uh, early in the count, uh, oh oh, you know, one oh, hitters are less likely to offer a, a high fastball, uh, specifically because they don't have to. And you know, the fastball's easier to recognize where it's going to end up out of the hand. It's, it's not a pitch that you know it takes as much time to react to. Um, so I think you know, with the fastball. You essentially need to convince the hitter to swing early, uh, and you know, on a 0-0 count or a 1-0 count, they don't necessarily need to swing early. They might be looking in a specific zone, see it coming out of the hand, know it's going to be high in the strike zone, and be willing to lay off. But two strikes, the swing rate goes way, way up. I think you know when we posted that rate of swings by count uh, a couple weeks ago, you, you saw like the, the two strike swing rate across all all counts, 0-2 to 3-2. Uh, the swing rate was very, very high. Hitters do not want to take a call strike three. So if you can throw a well-located 0-2 fastball or 3-2 fastball, uh, you know, and, and get hitters to chase it at the top of the strike zone, um, where they're not likely to make contact, you, I think you can get more strikeouts uh, and not give up as many home runs as if you're, you know, getting them to swing at a 1-0 high fastball. That's probably more likely to be the kind of high fastball that's hittable rather than one that's at the letters that they can't touch. Because the guy who's swinging at it is a guy who said, if I get a high fastball, I'm going to swing at it. Yeah, I mean, I think hitters, we just know that hitters expand the zone of two strikes, uh, probably for fear of taking a called strike three. Um, and so they're more willing to chase, chase pitches that they wouldn't chase earlier in the count. So you get away with a fastball up that a hitter wouldn't swing at, uh, you know, early in the count. He will swing at that pitch late in the count with two strikes. Uh, and you'll get uh, a lower contact rate essentially because they're expanding the types of high fastballs that they'll swing at. Or early in the count, they're only going to swing at high fastballs that they can hit. Now, you've referred to this as uh, pitching backwards, uh, what, what yeah. Crane is doing. You know, he's starting off with curveballs, it seems, in particular. Um, that's a term that's that's used for, for other pitchers, and I might ask you about which ones uh, specifically in a moment. But uh, obviously, we co- we call it pitching backwards because it is uh, it goes against, I guess, uh, received wisdom, accepted wisdom, where you you start by establishing the fastball, whether in a start or even in in a plate appearance, because you, you know typically pitchers have the most control over the fastball. You get a strike, you get ahead, etc. Uh, obviously, uh, another part of being a successful pitcher is is keeping the batter or the hitter uneasy um, and yeah. you know surprising him. And throwing a you know a curveball and a fastball count or a fastball and a curveball count whatever. Um, can, can you discuss maybe which pitchers are currently doing this or have notably done this in the past? Yeah, I think what we generally see is the guys who pitch backwards, the guys who don't have good fastballs. I mean, I think and that's generally the kind of pitcher that major league teams will accept pitching backwards from. Uh, you know, I think we've seen some instances of young pitchers coming up with good velocity who. Uh, throw a decent amount of breaking balls when you hear the announcers or commentators or columnists or whoever talk about how the pitcher's fallen in love with his off-speed stuff and he really needs to trust his fastball. And this is kind of the the narrative of the day is if you have velocity, you're supposed to throw your fastball 60% of the time or more 
Otherwise, you're trying to be too cute, and you'll see, you know, they'll talk about getting beat if they're best pitched. Uh, I think the pitchers that are allowed to pitch this way are generally guys like Tommy Malone or Jason Vargas or um, these change-up specialists who come up who throw 86 to 88 miles an hour, and no one really wants them throwing 60 70% fastballs because their fastball's not a good pitch. Uh, but I think what we've seen is that these guys succeed a decent amount more regularly than they expect based on their stuff. And I think that there's probably some carryover here that they're outperforming expectations because of the way they're pitching in a way that that probably could be transferred over to kind of traditional pitchers uh, with good stuff. I don't know that pitching backwards should be limited to uh, guys who throw you know, 90 and under. I think if you have a, a guy who throws 94 plus, but he can kind of do what uh, Jesse Crane is doing right now and bury a first pitch curveball when the hitter's looking for a fastball, get a cheap strike one, uh, and then now all of a sudden he's in a position where he can throw fastballs and sliders to get swings and misses and get the strikeout. That's the best of both worlds. And so um, I, I think that, you know, Major League Baseball has a tendency towards seeing pitching backwards as kind of a, a way of cheating for pitchers who don't have good fastballs, but I'm not sure that uh, this isn't just a better way to pitch, in, at least in terms of game theory. You don't want to throw a first-pitch curveball every at-bat, but, you know, getting away from this idea of every every at-bat has the same sequence of fastballs early and breaking balls late, uh, you know, mixing it up and giving hitters a reason to not know what's coming on the first pitch is probably a better idea overall. It seems like an interesting study might be this. Uh, might be to look at uh, power pitchers, and I guess you could, you know, you, you could uh, define power pitchers however you want. But say, say pitchers whose fastball velocity is like a standard deviation uh, or greater, better than uh, league average, and yeah. to, to to look at which one of those pitchers or which of those pitchers most often throw a secondary pitch for a first uh, for a first pitch strike, a first pitch called strike. Uh, that, would, right. that might I, might be an interesting group of pitchers, and to say, well, how are they doing? Well, you know, what does it look like? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is uh, something worth looking into. And I think that there's another variable here that we've talked about that, you know, you can't just tell every pitcher, hey, start throwing your breaking ball for a strike because a decent amount of pitchers can't throw breaking balls for strikes. I mean, there's a whole crop of pitchers who basically depend on burying their slider in the dirt and getting hitters to chase it. And if you ask them to throw it over the plate, they physically can't do it. Uh, you know, Oliver Perez comes to mind, for instance. He's been a very effective reliever for the Mariners this year, but this is not a guy you want to tell yeah, bury your, your slider for strike one, you probably can't do it. Um, so I think, you know, there's a prerequisite here of having command of your secondary pitches in order to pitch this way. And I think, you know, that's one of the reasons why the guys who generally pitch backwards are strike throwers, you know, the Malone and the Marcuses of the world. Uh, yeah, I think even Roy Halladay, you know, has some of this to an extent where he kind of dumped his fastball, added a cutter, uh, and, you know, kind of um, – worked heavily off of his off-speed stuff and then used fastballs to get strikeouts when he needed to. I think these kinds of pitchers have really good command. If you have a guy who, you know, struggles to throw strikes, like my guess is that Baldo Jimenez would not be very good at this. Uh, right, yeah. Um, let's uh, let's consider uh, something, uh, this is totally different. This is totally different, but it's related in the sense that uh, you've also written about this recently. And, uh, of course, it is a topic of conversation uh, to which... Uh, uh, baseball fans of a nerdly orientation, uh, they, they will always come back to it. Uh, and it, it's the matter of the Oakland Athletics and, I guess, specifically Billy Bean. Uh, you wrote about uh, the A's last year. Of course, I, I think uh, utilizing the uh, past 365 days feature um, among the, the team leaderboards, 
uh, you brought it to the reader's attention that the A's have, I think they have the best record over the past calendar year. Is that right? Yeah, by far. Oh, best record in the American League by a mile. I think they were just a little bit ahead of the Cincinnati Reds overall. Overall. Maybe two or three games ahead of the Reds, but they destroyed the best of the American League. Is there, is there anything different? Uh, I mean, besides the fact that it doesn't get you a place in the playoffs, is there anything different between being the, the best team over the past year as opposed to in, you know, 2013 or in 2012? Well, I think not getting a playoff present is probably the main difference, right? I mean, like, there's no crown for best July 15th right. to June 15th or whatever it is, you know. I mean, like, I think what we're looking at here is kind of a, it is an arbitrary endpoint in, in some ways. It's, it's not arbitrary in the sense that I didn't go looking for the date at which the A's record just happened to, you know, start trending upwards. Um, so I didn't pick the endpoints. I mean, last calendar year is just it's a year. Um, but it is a little bit arbitrary in the, in the sense that, um, you know, there's not necessarily a continuous roster. The 2012 second half A's are not the 2013 first half A's. So it doesn't necessarily tell us as much about um, this current A's team as, you know, looking solely in season data from players on the roster. Um, because last year, you know, the A's had pitchers like Brandon McCarthy who they don't have anymore. And they had, you know, players who are now in other cities. But at the same time, I think it's worth noting, uh, how well Billy Bean's team has done, considering, you know, kind of after Moneyball was published and, you know, he got a lot of press for building those teams around the turn of the century that did really well with small payrolls, a lot of the push against that, and what we still even hear from people who are critics of Moneyball, is that he basically rode the backs of Mark Mulder, Tim Hudson, Barry Zito, Miguel Tejada, and Jason Giambi, and everything else was just filler. And, like, you know, all this uh, talk about, uh, undervalued assets and Chad Bradford and Scott Hatterberg. None of these guys mattered. It was really the big three and then these two MVP-style hitters who may or may not have been using performance-dancing drugs. Uh, this is not a roster like that at all. And I think one of the interesting things, or maybe the most interesting thing, is that as much as it's been talked about with the Rays and the A's and these teams of really developing from within and building teams with youth and prospects and, and through the farm system, uh, the A's don't have anything like that. I mean, Dan Straley is basically the best homegrown player on their roster. Uh, he was a 24th round pick. Everything else is scrap heap guys, undervalued free agents, uh, bargains that they got in trade. This is a team that's being literally cobbled together of, uh, cast offs from other organizations that have won 65% of their games over the last year. That's pretty amazing. So, so we know that uh, obviously this is well tried territory. The theme, uh, the narrative, uh, regarding those early A's teams, you know, earlier in Billy Bean's um, stint as GM there, time as GM there, was, uh, right, uh, if isolating players with high walks, uh, high walk rates, maybe not particularly athletic. And uh, and then, of course, you know, uh, augmenting that narrative is the fact that they had three really good pitchers, um, and yeah. as you mentioned, Tejada and Giambi. Is there any sort of cohesive theme or narrative uh, w- with regard to this team in terms of skills, or is it more what you're saying, uh, isolating any sort of talented player as long as you don't have to pay him as much? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the cohesive theme that runs throughout the team is just being undervalued for some reason. Uh, I mean, Josh Donaldson and Cover Crisp are nothing alike, really. Um, you know, Donaldson was a catching prospect with, you know, very little athletic ability, who they turned into a pretty decent hitting third baseman, you know, five years after they acquired him. Uh, Chris was an undervalued center fielder who's always been a little bit better than people think, and they've just been able to find to, you know, bargain free agent contracts because Chris has that kind of 
good at everything, not great at anything skill set that often gets undervalued. Um, I think, you know, on the pitching side, you could maybe say that they're putting an emphasis on strike throwers and, uh, you know, maybe less so on strikeouts. They have guys like, you know, Bartolo Colon, uh, who they're signing for peanuts, partly because he's old, partly because he throws one pitch in the strike zone every time and gets better throws. No one really knows how he does it. Um, and, the, you know, I think their, their rotation doesn't walk anybody with Cologne and Malone and A.J. Griffin. They've got a, a rotation full of guys who count in the strike zone. But at the same time, they also have Jared Parker and Brett Anderson, uh, who aren't, you know, huge command guys. So I don't think we can say that Dean is targeting one type of player. He's just targeting, you know, good players he can afford. Right, and, and, and I guess it has succeeded. Um, uh, yeah, looking at this team, there's not really much in the way of stars here. Uh, or no. I guess, or, or um, I should say, relative to their talent, uh, their, their recognition is, is uh, uh, not as great. And I guess another a question that would come up is, did all these players have these talents before they arrived with the A's? I mean, you mentioned Crisp as an in-between guy. Josh Donaldson has been, uh, has been a revelation this year. Um, yeah. His performance, uh, why, it doesn't look sustainable if we consider Josh Donaldson from last year and before, although I guess he was better towards the end of last year. Um, but it looks sustainable mostly in the sense that he's not doing anything crazy. He doesn't appear to be getting crazy lucky uh, on batted balls, for example. He's got you know 35% bad rate that could go down. But uh, he's, he's definitely better than a player – uh, ought to be, be given what he's paid. Uh, do do we sense that if this is from a coaching perspective, or is it somehow um, their their scouts recognizing certain traits that could be improved upon in these players? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the toughest questions to answer with any organization. We talked about with the Cardinals a few weeks ago, where it's like, did they did they were they geniuses for drafting Matt Carpenter in the 13th round, or did they just take a guy without much talent and turn him into a pretty good player? I think in the A's case, just like with every other case, it's probably a mix of both. But I do think that there's going to be a rush on Chili Davis this winter. I think Chili, Chili Davis would be a hitting coach, uh, widely regarded as one of the, the better hitting coaches in baseball right now. The A's players rave about him. Uh, I think Chili Davis is going to be managing a major league team next year. The only question is what team. Uh, but you talk about, you know, Coco Crisp and Josh Donaldson and Josh Reddick and a lot of the guys they've gotten come to Oakland and really kind of transformed his hitters. Uh, Davis has gotten a decent amount of credit for that, and I think if you have heard heard him talk or read some of the interviews he's given, it seems like his approach uh, lines up really well with what Oakland has traditionally done, where he's very into taking pitches, uh, getting deep in counts, and then when you get ahead in a hitter's count, 3-0, 3-1, you know, 2-1, swings of offense. So this is an article I wrote for ESPN Insider and Stingers Plus uh, that published yesterday on kind of Coco Crisp's power surge and where this comes from, uh, if you look at what Coco Crisp is doing when he's ahead in the count, in, in hitter's count, uh, he's 19th in the majors in OPS, 23rd in slugging percentage. Coco Crisp has a higher slugging percentage in hitter's counts than guys like Prince Fielder and Carlos Gonzalez. Uh, Coco Crisp is, you know, 5'10 and 180 pounds, <laughs> but when he gets ahead in the count this year, he's swinging for the moon, and uh, it's working. He's, he's slugging like 500, he's, and he did this in the second half last year, it's not just a small sample size thing. I think there's some evidence that guys like Chris and Donaldson have really benefited from this idea of uh, being selective early, getting into fastball counts, and then when you get a fastball, uh, hit the crap out of it. <laughs> you know, it seems like a pretty basic philosophy, but for whatever reason, uh, it seems like Chili Davis might have some ability to convince hitters to, to buy into this, and my guess is that uh, Chili Davis is going to take that philosophy somewhere else and be a major league manager next year. 
Now, one thing you've mentioned uh, previously, uh, uh, discussed, we've discussed it on the podcast, is um, uh, maybe a slight change in the model of um, what what teams do in terms of acquiring outfielders. Of course, historically, left, center, and right field have all been pretty well defined in terms of uh, what a team is looking for out of a player. Of course, left field is just he's a guy there who's a little bit more mobile than a first baseman. Center field is usually like an ultra-athlete, you know, fleet of foot, able to cover a lot of ground. And right fielder is a little bit like the left fielder, except usually with with a plus arm. Um, we've discussed this uh, this this year, though, is that teams are, or at least the better teams, are have been a little bit more flexible in terms of what they're looking at uh, for outfielders. As long as you have three guys who complement each other in some way, they can cover the outfield. That seems to be happening in Oakland right now because you have in in Yohannes Cespedes and Josh Reddick, the typical left and right starting outfielders. You have players who are probably above average for their position, but they would be below average center fielders. And then Coco Crisp is not, uh, despite what is obviously pretty good speed, he's never necessarily been regarded, I think, as a plus defensive center fielder. Although perhaps I'm wrong in that regard. It, do we see that? Do we see an example of that um, happening here in Oakland? A sort of uh, um, an assortment of outfielders, none the prototypical at his position, but uh, I guess in some are able to cover the outfield. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there's probably other examples, uh, you know, like Carl Crawford playing uh, left field, you know, in both Tampa Bay, Boston, and now Los Angeles. Uh, I think, you know, there are maybe some other examples of franchises that have gone a little bit more uh, towards, you know, the multi-center fielder model. But I think there's no question that Oakland has put a premium on outfield defense over the years, uh, going after guys like, you know, Johnny Damon, who was a good range, low-arm guy. Uh, who a lot of teams thought, you know, didn't think that highly of his defense because he couldn't throw, uh, but the A's saw him as, you know, a nice rental player that they could go after who could really cover some ground. And they certainly uh, had good outfield defenses with multiple center fielders playing next to each other. Uh, Suspedes was considered to be a center fielder who was playing a corner spot, uh, but the bat obviously plays in the corner. So this, this is not necessarily a, uh, you know, it's not a Brett Gardner situation necessarily. But I do think that the A's are, are certainly one of the franchises that are willing to look at it and say, we have three outfielders. We don't really care what they look like in terms of, you know, where the power comes from or what their batting lines look like. Uh, we're going to, you know, pick the three best outfielders we can find. If that's three center fielders, that's three center fielders. If that's three right fielders, that's three right fielders. Um, you know, I think this is probably a better way of looking at your outfield rather than uh, be kind of archaic up-the-middle uh, idea where you have a center fielder who can play defense and two corner guys who can hit for power. Um, you know, the idea is to, to outscore your opponents, not necessarily outslug your opponents. So if you get, you know, three really good defensive outfielders, uh, that's going to help you outscore your opponents, you know, maybe not quite as well as if you have Barry Bonds in the corner, but it's going to work, and, and they're probably cheaper. Uh, last thing, uh, and then uh, you'll have fulfilled your obligations here. Um, we've written about, on the site, we've written, uh, I think just the past week, a couple times about the San Diego Padres. Uh, Jeff Sullivan did today. Uh, uh, looking at the Padres, uh, especially how you may not know it, um, but a team which you know is able to generally suppress runs by virtue of their ballpark uh, is pitching kind of bad, uh, but their offense and uh, fielding numbers have more than made up for it over a certain stretch of time uh, when they're uh, a stretch over which uh, the course of which they're one of the best teams in the majors. One of the ways they're really doing it is. Um, well, by virtue of their middle infield, and especially shortstop Everth Cabrera, yeah. um, he's one of the top ten players in the league right now by WAR. Which I th- I think if you you know if you look 
even like the top 30 is probably the most surprising name on that list. Do you have a sense um, of what has happened to Everest Cabrera and if there's any way we could have uh, predicted something like that happening? Well, so I believe Cabrera was a rule five pick a couple of years ago. Uh, he was taken because he was like a kind of a flashy, good glove shortstop uh, who draw walks occasionally, and that was kind of his skill set. And we've seen, you know, uh, a decent amount of AAA players like this who, you know, they can play the position, they don't hit a lot, uh, and then, you know, they, they have some plate display. So I guess the major leagues based on that skill set. Uh, I think the main thing that we've seen with Cabrera that probably wasn't anticipated was a power spike, and, you know, whether you want to say it's coincidentally or not, Everett Cabrera was named in the biogenesis papers. So, uh, you know, I think what we have is a guy showing unexpected amounts of power, especially for his size, also being linked to PEDs. I have some skepticism personally over, you know, the effects of PEDs on baseball players, not necessarily on, you know, guys who go to the gym and work out, you know, 15 hours a day, but on a guy like Cabrera who's, you know, not the biggest guy in the world and uh, certainly doesn't look like a bodybuilder. But at the same time, I think, you know, it would be, uh, uh, we should at least acknowledge that, that he's had a surprising power spike and is linked to biogenesis. Um, you know, whether that means that he's going to immediately regress or, you know, who knows. I don't think we know enough about steroids and steroid usage and whether Cabrera is using in order to make any kind of predictions like that. But I do think that, you know, it's at least worth noting that his power probably wasn't supposed to develop like it has. Right, right. I guess he, yes, he appears to have, uh, uh, roughly matched his previous output in terms of home runs just this season. Of course, that's still four. Um, yeah. I, I mean, he's not, yeah, he hasn't turned into a monster, but he's hitting a lot of doubles. He's getting a lot of extra base hits. I think he throws in the mid ones, uh, which for a, a, you know, a slight middle infielder who plays in the Park, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess whatever. Is it. What's, what's the, uh, I know that, um, when Ethereum has written about it recently, what's the state of the biogenesis situation right now? Uh, so it sounds like, um, Major League Baseball is interviewing all of the players that were implicated by uh, papers found in the, um, the reports from the Miami New Times and Anthony Bosch, the doctor who, or pseudo-doctor, I guess, uh, who ran the, the biogenesis clinic has agreed to cooperate with Major League Baseball. Um, so now they're talking to all of the players this month, and the idea is that they will have some determination of whether they can suspend these players or take action uh, against them. Uh, probably, you know, beginning in July, uh, sometime in the second half. So there, the investigation continues, uh, but it's probably headed towards some kind of uh, second half or all-star break timed uh, attempt at suspensions for some players. Yeah. All right. Well, I, yeah, I know it's not like talking about it. And uh, any notice, uh, uh, you, you see uh, who among all starting pitchers uh, – is uh, what third in park adjusted exit over the last month? Oh. I, I'm going to guess it's probably Corey Kluber. Corey Kluber, yeah. Did you see uh, you started pitch yesterday? Eight strikeouts, shut out. Eight strikeouts, zero walks. Yeah, it's not so bad. I, it was a lot better than the start he had in the week before, where he got like two outs or something. I don't remember. I don't think anyone remembers <laughs> that. <laughs> he had, a, he had a, a bit of a stinker of a start, not too. Uh, far back. Not now. too long ago? Is that true? Is that true? It was banned the Corey Kluber Society, but you're clearly still going strong. No, yeah, we're, well, yeah, we're, yeah, we're strong. We have a official recognition now, uh, an enterprising member of the internet has added, uh, Corey Kluber Society to, uh, Corey Kluber's Wikipedia page. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, I think, uh, 
you and Wikipedia have a long storied history. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. Uh, well, I can guarantee in this case it was not me. And in fact, it was taken down um, by a concerned member of the Wikipedia community because there were no citations. Uh, but a, a second uh, a second enterprising member of the Internet has gone back and uh, provided citations. So that's good. Yes. We, the Cory Cooper Society has to be a Wikipedia. This is wrong. They must be right. Yeah, there it is. It's still there. Well, uh, Cameron, you've done, uh, you've done your job for the week so far as this is concerned. I will tell you and I'll tell uh, listeners that uh, uh, maybe next Monday, there's some question mark, I will be in Michigan uh, visiting my in-laws. Um, uh-huh. They have since, uh, since last year, they've acquired the Internet at their home, but there's, uh, there remains to be seen what the strength of that interconnection, Internet connection looks like. So you're basically saying you would rather spend time with your in-laws than do a podcast? I'm not saying that. No, I'm not saying that at all. Uh, they are the, they're great people, though. Uh, good folks, and uh, it's just you uh, must say that now that they've acquired the internet. Yeah, I will. I will say that I'm more interested in doing what my wife says to do than in doing a podcast next week. Um, uh, but if it means I can do, if I can do both, then I'll do. I'll definitely do both. Right. Well, I will. I will wait with bated breath to find out what we will do together. I knew that's what your breath smelled like. All right, uh, Dave Cameron. Uh, thank you very much for for uh, making your weekly appearance of Fangraphs Audio. Thanks for having me. Yeah, that's Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio.